Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This 
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we've got another listener's choice pick. This week, we're making good on winner Matt Medrano's selection. It's David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of The Fly. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And... It's time to double-check the count on your teeth and fingernails before you buzz over to the next reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And since Games Master Stephen Smart is busy vomiting on his food to aid with digestion, I'll fill you in this week. The movie was David Kep's 2008 film Ghost Town, starring Ricky Gervais, Greg Kinnear, and Taya Leone. Congrats to per 76 for figuring it out on Image 2. You are once again entered to win the 2016 Pony Prize. You know what it is, Andy? You, I, I do this subtle thing, right? To check your teeth and fingernails, and you go straight to vomit. Uh, yeah, yep, I think that's yep. a, a telling character thing between us. <laughs> right to the gore. <laughs> we got a blot spot that is, I'm going to call it once again, Andy, redemptive. <laughs> well, yeah, Ben says, it makes no sense to me that I was crying at the end of Seabiscuit. I'm not a fan of <laughs> horse racing. to any of us. <laughs> I'm not a fan of horse racing, and I had the same problem as Pete with the first act of the movie being poorly edited, and I do not like Tobey Maguire's acting at all. Yet that final act is so brilliantly crafted, from visuals to script and score, that I had 100% emotional engagement. Didn't love the movie, but I sure walked away with a smile on my face. Your rank 59, my rank 118. (laughs) You hear that? He had the same problem as Pete. I hear that. I hear that. I disagree with both of you now, but you know what? He still walked away with a smile on my face, on, on his face. So I will call that a win. Even if he walks away with a smile on your face, whatever. Yeah, you know. I don't really care. That Pete thing, sounds right? like a smart guy. Oh, <laughs> you. I think it's time, Andy. Let's do trailers. Okay, do you, do you want to do your weird trailer or mine? <laughs> let's let's do yours first because mine is a better lead into our movie. Okay, that's fair. I have chosen Frank and Lola. That Michael Shannon. I'm really intrigued by that guy. He is he's really fantastic, and I think this is as a Michael Shannon like straight up vehicle. I'm excited about it. it comes from writer director Matthew Ross. Uh, stars Justin Long, Imogene Poots. And, uh, of course, Michael Shannon. It is the, it, it's pitched on IMDb as a psychosexual noir love story set in Las Vegas and Paris about love, obsession, sex, betrayal, revenge, and ultimately the search for redemption. Uh, it, it's also about food and chefs, and I like that. And so I think it's probably a, a nice cross between Last Tango in Paris and uh, Burnt and maybe Chef. So if we could throw all those things in a blender, we'll probably get Frank and Lola. Uh, You know what? You should actually throw them into a telepod, Pete. (laughs) Maybe that'll get... That's what we need. Uh, We will fuse them. Uh, I am... uh, I'm fascinated by the look of the film. I... Again, I'm thrilled with uh, uh, Michael Shannon. Matthew Ross, I know very, very uh, little about, apart from the fact that he is uh, an award-winning New York uh, director, writer-director. He's uh, uh, All he has so far, as far as I can tell, are shorts. Here comes your man, Curtis and Clover, Lola, Red Angel, and inspired by Brett Easton Ellis, all short films. This is his first uh, feature. 
I it looks weirdly violent, a bit surreal, and yet a. a what amounts to be probably a crazy relationship film. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. What? How did it hit you? You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of Last Tango in Paris, that kind of psychosexual exploration sort of film. It doesn't do a whole lot of a lot for me. Uh, I can find it a little trying to uh, delve uh, into a, a dark, dramatic story like that. This looks uh, along those lines, and so that aspect of it didn't thrill me too much. But there is a little bit more of a thriller aspect that I, I found through this trailer that did pique my curiosity. So I can't say it's at the top of my list, but it definitely uh, piqued my curiosity still. You know, I, I think that's a really fair thing to say. I'm not crazy about Last Tango in Paris either. I, f- I find it pretty trying to watch. But this one, like you say, it has that thriller thing. I'm more interested in Michael Shannon than I am in Brando in that in, in that film. Uh, and... Um, uh, so I'm 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 gonna I just think visually it looks really interesting to me and and certainly has much more variety. Where did you stand on on uh, Henry and June? Uh, the, kind of in the same camp, you know. It wasn't uh, anything that really excited me too much. I, I found it more of a curiosity to watch um, because of um, its position in the way the ratings ended up kind of getting restructured at the time. Yeah. I'm I'm more interested in this film as it relates to something like Henry and June. For me, they strike me as different films, and so I'm very curious about um, uh, about it. And uh, I will find out everything. All my questions will be answered uh, on when it hits at least wideish release, December 9th, twenty sixteen. It has been floating around festivals since January twenty seventh when it opened at Sundance. Uh, and so you may have already seen it if you live in San Francisco, Seattle, Melbourne, Deauville, or uh, Russia. Interesting. Yeah. So December 9th, what's yours? Well, mine, just going a little more for kind of the uh, the dark thriller horror sort of vibe, uh, it, fitting with what we're talking about tonight. I'm looking at Gore Verbinski's new trailer for A Cure for Wellness, his movie that's opening up uh, in next uh, February. This is the story of an ambitious young executive who is sent to retrieve his company's CEO from an idyllic but mysterious wellness center at a remote location in the Swiss Alps who soon suspects that the spa's miraculous treatments are not what they seem. The trailer doesn't really delve into that story too much. What it does delve into is a lot of the atmosphere and mood and the vibe that you get in this particular film. Gore Verbinski is not a director who always thrills me, but I do find he's a director who comes up with visuals that uh, are pretty stunning to look at. Um, and knowing that he has delved into horror with his remake of The Ring, I really enjoyed what he did there. And I feel like he's bringing some of that vibe back uh, into this particular story. Um, this is one that he um, kind of came up with the story with Justin Haith, who is a... Um, a writer who helped him out on The Lone Ranger, which I didn't see, but, you know, it didn't, uh, it kind of got poo-pooed quite a bit. Um, that being said, you know, Justin Haith also worked on The Clearing, on Revolutionary Road, on Snitch, some films that I found really interesting, a lot of interesting character stuff going on in those films. And so I feel like, if nothing else, this is a pair of people that can put together a really interesting story about uh, some interesting characters and in this thriller setting, I think Gore Verbinski could do some really inter- interesting things with it. So I'm pretty excited about it. It's got an interesting cast. Dane DeHane is the one who is uh, most prominent. 
Um, Jason Isaacs pops up in it, Mia Goth, uh, Celia Imrie. And, you know, all in all, it looks really kind of creepy. And so I'm quite excited about it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, it looks creepy, but I love the I, I love the setup. I love the the sort of setup of the narrative that we have. Uh, it feels to me like it's a film that's telling a story of how we are so happy and yet we don't know it. <laughs> And so, like, you don't know how good you have it is is a narrative trope that I really like explored in in this way. So I'm excited about it. I think the production artwork or the marketing artwork is just lovely. I think it is really compelling. The poster work is is great. I love the photography and the the, the floating woman in the bottle. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of Mia Goth. I mean, we we saw her a little bit in Everest, and we're we are. We may talk to her this year in Suspiria, uh, the re- 2017 remake. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about that too. So um, I think it's got a, a lot going for it. Maybe a little weird for a guy like me who has kind of a soft stomach for this for horror stuff, but for the thriller side, I I can check it out. Well, it is billed as a mystery thriller, so I yeah. think that you'll be safe. All right. I think well, as long safe. as you say so. <laughs> there you go. Uh, this is going to have a big release uh, across uh, pretty much around the globe starting mid-February in 2017 into mid-March, uh, hitting the U.S. February 17th. What am I working on, Andy? I'm working on something that will change the world and human life as we know it. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that will change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. The Fly, Andy, 1986, David Cronenberg... Uh, this is a, uh, it's a pretty gross, pretty gross, uh, story. It's pretty gross. It does have some goo. Oh, there's so much goo. Oh God, <laughs> it's coming out of every pore. Uh, but this was the pick. This was the pick as we were given it from uh, Listener's Choice winner Matt Medrano. Uh, thank you so much, Matt, for doing this. It's, it, you know what? I'm even going to say, as somebody who has trouble with some of these kinds of films, this was a great pick. Uh, so we, as we often do with these listeners' choice uh, uh, conversations, we started with a conversation with Matt. He joined us uh, a, a couple weeks back as we record this now uh, to share why he felt it was important that we talk about uh, The Fly on this show. So here you go, Matt Medrano. Matt Medrano, long last man. You are here <laughs> in the flesh. How are you, man? I'm uh, doing good. Doing real good from Milwaukee. Milwaukee. <laughs> it's been it's been quite a while. You've been you've been following the show for quite a while. You've been uh, trying to get in on those uh, listeners' choice episodes uh, pretty much every time we've had an uh, opportunity. And uh, this was it. You finally broke through and uh, got selected as the listeners' choice for this episode. It's got to be a good feeling, huh? Honestly, I, I didn't even believe I, I had won. <laughs> I, just, I just thought you were commenting like, "All right, don't don't forget to vote," you know. And, and uh, I saw it and I was like, "Oh, how about how about that?" You know, I couldn't just couldn't believe it. Yeah, you know, it's. I think if I recall, I think you've actually had the movie that you wanted to talk about on your list from the very beginning. Am I right? Have you been teasing us with this forever? <laughs> In fact, I. Uh, 
pretty much thought maybe you guys would just cover it on your own at some point before I actually won the uh, Listener's Choice Award. Yeah, there's probably a fair chance that that we would have gotten to it eventually. Our list is long, but uh, this is this is oh, yeah. quite a film. What did you pick? I took 1986's uh, um, The Fly. Oh, the, the David Cronenberg remake. David Cronenberg. Oh yeah. yeah. Quite, quite a film. I, I haven't watched it. Uh, as we record this, I have not watched it yet. It's been many years since I have seen it. I have a great fondness for the film and the, the sense memory that it gives me uh, when I watch it. Uh, but uh, I, I got to know, why is this film an important one for you, Matt? You know, honestly, I, I know you guys know I've, I've been working on my own uh, screenplay. My uh, script actually deals with, it's a monster movie, you know, it deals with human transformation as well, uh, very similar to The Fly. and I draw a lot of parallels to it, and it's just it's just one of those movies that uh, I remember seeing as a kid that would you know it grossed me out and and scared me and, and thrilled me, and then seeing it as an adult, like I was able to look at the characters and the story a little more you know uh, critically, and it just it just got better as I as I got older too. Now, have you uh, seen the original? Did you did you see it before or after this one? What's your uh, kind of a relationship between the two of them? Um, yeah, I saw the original with my, or my mom showed me when I was a kid, and uh, I actually don't remember if she showed me the whole movie or if she would just call me over into the kitchen and show me when he pulls, when she pulls the hood off his head, you know, and, and see the, the screaming scene. But <laughs> you, you uh, have a, that's a great parental moment. <laughs> it was either that one or uh, the very end when he's when he's about to get smashed by Vincent Price with the, you know, with the, with the uh, stone. Help me! Yeah. Right. Classic. <laughs> but I definitely have that ingrained in my memory as well. Do you have a preference between the two? Um, I like Cronenberg's the best. Uh, I, I, I appreciate the original. They're pretty different films. I, I appreciate the original for what it was, and uh, and how it gets. It still gets referenced today, and you know, and like things like The Simpsons, <laughs> you know, and and different popular uh, uh, shows like that. But um, but I I still like the Cronenberg's the best. I think just. Uh, Something about the music, you know, even the music is really good in there and the special effects and the, you know, the characters. And it's, it's, it uses so few, so few characters too, which, which I really liked, you know, it is only, there's only a few characters in it and they kind of boil it down to just a couple of different locations. And it's just a really well put together story. Do you find that you're a, a big fan of Cronenberg in general, or is this kind of uh, the, the peak of Cronenberg for you? What's your uh, sense of him as a director? You know, I look back at some of his movies that he's that he's also done, and I, I actually don't think I've seen very many very many of them. I'm, uh, you've seen Scanners, right? Tell me you've seen Scanners. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's the only other one that I've that, seen. That's, that's the only <laughs> one that you need to see. Really, you know, and, and you may not even need to like it. You just need to have seen it. I find him, he's an interesting director, and I think this film really sets the tone, the fly, of, of why I liked him. I also hit this film at a really, you know, for me, it, it hit at an age where I was... Uh, I think really susceptible. I think like like Matt, your experience with your mom, that was my experience with my dad. Um, I, I think mostly he was trying to see what kind of boundaries he could push with me as a young movie viewer uh, <laughs> about what would like freak me out forever versus what would just, you know, gross me out for now. And uh, and this was one of those movies that was high on that list. Like when he's let, let's just see. 
when is it okay to watch when he pulls his fingernails off? Okay, we got that one. Maybe is it okay <laughs> when he throws up on that dude's hand? Is it okay? Okay, we moved on from that. Let's see. And so this movie, like it, it unleashes the gore so uh, rhythmically over the course of the of of the length of the film that uh, that it works well for introducing kids to horror. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because, like I said, my mom showed me the the original. When I was a kid, and it had to be on reruns by then, but my dad, he he took me to the theater to see um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think I was four years old, and I, I still remember, I remember wanting to close my eyes when the aliens came out, but couldn't, just couldn't close my eyes, you know, and <laughs> he took me to see um, Alien, the original Alien, oh, yeah. and when I was wow. six, I mean, he, he was a little more hardcore. In fact, he's the one that showed me the, uh, the Cronenberg's uh, The Fly, you know, we remember uh, renting that one. It it just pushed me closer toward uh, toward monster movies and and uh, horror movies and you know in general. I know I know you you said you don't like uh, you don't like to watch them a lot, but uh, I I love them. Do you really? Oh, it's it it's a select few. It's it's a select few that I can get through, and and the fly is one of them. Maybe because I've seen it, I, I saw it so early, and I can I could still get through it. But but the other piece that I think really strikes me about the fly is that uh, you know Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis really sell it. Oh yeah. Uh, and and Goldblum in particular as Seth Brundle, he really sells it uh, as a quality you know performance uh, that is is more than it's than than the horror. He's the ni- he's such a nice guy, you know. We 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 love the guy, and he just wanted to create teleportation because he got because uh, he like gets sick when he I think when he, when he drove or when he got he got air sick or something like that, you know, when he, as a kid. So growing up, he just he he did that. And he's you know, a guy that you love, then you see him slowly, you know, turn into this into this monster, and you can't really hate the guy, you know. You you feel bad for him at the end, you know, when he's when she's <laughs> when she blows his head off with a rifle. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I really liked about the about the fly was the uh, uh, besides those two characters, which are, of course are, are awesome, was the um, John Getz's character. Uh, I think his name is Stathis or Stathis, because he's such a creep. You know, he's such a creep, and man, an adversary. You know, if anything, he's the maybe maybe a, a villain in the movie. But no matter what, even at the end, we he. Uh, Cronenberg shapes it so that we're we're cheering for the guy at the end because he's he's trying to help Gina Davis out, you know, and and the guy gets you know spoiler alert gets his hands gets his hands melted and his his foot melted off and you know if you feel bad for that guy even too. Yeah, they they do a great job of creating really interesting characters that you uh, that you actually care about in this horror movie, and it's you really end up by the time you get to the end, you realize what a tragedy this whole story is. It's really, uh, I think, it's a, a a really strong adaptation of that original story, and I think that Cronenberg did some great stuff to uh, to amplify it. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely way up there for me. It'll be interesting to see where this one ranks. Have you ranked it on? Uh, are you a, a flick chart follower, uh, Matt? Uh, you know, I, I, I've been wanting to, and I haven't, and, uh, I think I'm going, I think I'm going to start. I just, uh, cause I've, I, I'm a movie lover in just, you know, extraordinaire. And, and even with all the movies that you guys have seen, I still haven't seen all of them, but, uh, but sometimes it's just those that voting, man, oh, just tears at your heart. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. I don't know why we do it. I really don't. It hurts every single week. Uh, and yet this one, this is one that I think is, is, uh, it'll, I'm really curious. It's a 7.5 on IMDb right now. Uh, it's a, it's a, a very strong performer. And for something that I usually, in a genre that I usually try to avoid, uh, I, it's, it, it's close to my heart. I gotta tell you, I'm glad we're going to talk about it. This is a great recommendation. 
Um, yeah, I, super yeah, happy too. to hear. I'm, I'm very excited. It's uh, it's way up there on my chart too. So I'm I'm glad that we finally get the chance to uh, chat about it. Okay, so give us the update, uh, Matt, on the screenplay. <laughs> where where are you on it? Why haven't we seen the draft? <laughs> yeah, there's been and and uh, are are Andy and I slated to be in it at all? <laughs> there's you know, <laughs> I'm sure I can throw your names in there. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's funny. I I've been working on this thing for so many years, and I think I've done about three different drafts. I think I've completed about three different drafts and, and they're all very different from each other. I, uh, I, this is my first one, you know, so I've been, it's, it's been, it's been rough. The three drafts, they, I, in my opinion, they keep getting, they keep getting better. And I, I know I've just got to finish one and, and get it out there. And, uh, it's listening, you know, to these podcasts. If, if you, if I, if I can say that, uh, it's really helped me shape like characters. You know, I, I think my script's gone down from, probably like 14 different characters and, you know, tons of scenes to, you know, maybe four or five different characters and just a, you know, a handful of scenes or compared to the, to the first one. So I, you know, I feel it tightening down and, and getting more character driven. And I, I really like, I think about it every day, whether or not I get to write, write up, write it every day, but it, you know, it's, it's still getting there, but I really like the direction it's going. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Three drafts. That's uh, it, you know, that's that's an accomplishment. There are a lot of people out there who are writing screenplays that haven't finished their a single draft. So um, that you're still working on it. When I was teaching screenwriting, we would always talk about how the rewrite is really the hardest part. So so kudos to you for plugging away and sticking with it, man. Yeah, it is the hardest part. I, you know, I I've had to cut so many scenes and even a like three characters that I just love. And I was like, it, it just, they just don't fit or it didn't make sense. And, you know, and I have, it's because it's taken so long, I've been able to look back at those drafts, those past drafts and think like, Oh, thank God I didn't send that one out. You know, <laughs> kind of thing. you don't want to get cooked in the squat though, man. You got to get it out there. Let it see the light, yeah. get some other eyes on it. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to continued progress and great success, Matt. Thank you so much for your time uh, today. Joining us from Milwaukee. Hey, thank you, and, and let me just uh, just say thank you for your for your podcast too. You know, I think yours was probably the probably the first movie podcast that I listened to, and now my my list of podcasts that I have uh, on my um, iPod or you know, goes to about forty or fifty. But honestly, I, I I'm not just <laughs> not just saying this. I really don't think I found one that's equal or better than than yours. I love hearing you guys and. Uh, it's just always it's always a pleasure listening to your podcast and all the movies you cover. Oh, Matt, that that means a great deal, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely, thank you so much. No, thank you, and uh, thanks for thanks for covering the fly. <laughs> we can't wait. Here we go. Let's dig into it, Andy. Let's do it. I watch this movie and I have a lot of excitement around it, and I find that very strange and and uncomfortable uh, <laughs> because it's super gross in places that I don't want it to be gross, and yet I think this combination of uh, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis and John Getz on screen uh, telling this story the way they do, it's just captivating to me. I I assume you share my excitement. Absolutely. Um, I uh, This was not a film that my parents would have taken me to in the theaters in 1986. Um, I'm sure they would have thought it would have blown my mind, but 
you know, a short time after that when I was on HBO, it was no problem for me to watch, and I watched it a plenty. <laughs> this is one that I uh, I taped off of HBO, and I swear I watched this just all the time. Um, and this probably um, between this and the thing were probably the two foundational films that really spurred my love for just kind of the 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 effects work and the the creatures and all of that sort of stuff. I mean. Um, this is such a fun film for me to watch and I haven't revisited it in quite a while. So it was, uh, it was a thrill that uh, Medrano picked it so that we could actually talk about it because boy, do I love it. All right. So this is, I have a hard time categorizing this film, um, because so much of it is, is very thriller. And then science fiction, we're dealing with teleportation. He's trying to change the world. Uh, and yet he transforms into this horrible, disfigured creature and uh, does incredibly horrible, disgusting things to other people. What I find so interesting about this film is that there isn't an overriding sense of malevolence to it. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. No, this is really an interesting story about uh, a person who... Um, is just trying to explore and be scientific. And just because of this mistake that happens, his brain ends up really kind of shifting and and turning. And his speech that he has about uh, the insect politics and how, you know, the insect, uh, you know, the human, what does he say? And now the insect is uh, dreaming he was a human, but now the insect is awake. And yeah. what I'm saying is if, if, if you stay, I'll hurt you. Um, that's so terrifying. You know, this this person who realizes his brain is being taken over by this primitive mind of an insect and there will be no more thinking really. It's just going to be acting and doing what he thinks is correct. And that transformation that Goldblum makes as he becomes uh, the Brundlefly and continues down that path uh, is just fascinating to watch and terrifying to watch. And really, just seeing it right up to the end when it's it's that heartbreaking moment when he ends up accidentally getting himself fused with uh, pieces of his own pod, his own telepod, uh, and you get that that look in his face as he you know kind of helps her raise the shotgun to his own head. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, it's it, this is a crazy sci-fi horror drama love story that has all these elements. And what I found so interesting this time when I watched it is I'm like, this is Amore. This is the same thing as Amore, this story about a loved one that you have who gets this illness that, uh, you know, it's just, it's killing them and it's it's destroying their life to the point where they finally say, you know, just put me out of my misery. Wow, you know, it's it's such a strange thing to think about. But even Cronenberg says this is about mortality and the way we deal with it and try to understand it and the philosophies and emotional attitudes that we develop towards it. I find it so fascinating that all of this is in this crazy sci-fi horror film. I, I really do, too. I think the presentation of it is also of note to me. I found myself comparing it to Jaws so frequently throughout the film because they they end up pulling the, the um, you know, don't show the shark trick. And I know Jaws had other motivations for not showing the shark. Here, it felt really uh, intentional that they would, they, they did a great job of withholding a lot of the, the grosser stuff until they would 
absolutely show the gross stuff and really linger on it much longer than I needed them to linger on it. I was okay with it right up to that point. And then I found myself getting, I, I mean, I've seen this film a number of times and I'm still, I'm a grown man and I am like curling up on the couch, like having to hide my eyes from the, some of the food vomiting scenes and things like that. Really particularly disgusting um, stuff. But that mix, it, it gives it a wholly unique tone to me, right? It's not completely horrific. And, uh, and that makes it much more, I think, approachable. Uh, I'm not going to show my kids this film yet, but it's it's on the way. Uh, this was based on a short story by George Langelan. Uh, am I getting that right? Uh, I think Langelan, but yeah. I, Langelan? It's, it's There's a lot like of that. A's right in a row. Anyway. Yes, there are. It's like, it's, uh, like a, it's like a Middle Earth name or something. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, and then the screenplay uh, written uh, by uh, Together, it looks like Charles Edward Pogue and David Cronenberg. What do we know about the screenplay? Well, this uh, this came about because uh, a producer friend of Pogue's, who I think worked at Fox, uh, suggested, hey, you should do a rewrite of The Fly. I mean, it had been made as a film in the 50s um, with Vincent Price as a character in it. And, you know, it's famous for kind of a lot of that sci-fi element and certainly has been spoofed aplenty since then. You know, the whole idea of this guy gets fused with it and then he comes out and he's got a, a fly head and a fly arm, but the rest of him is still human. And then you find out later in the film that there's a little tiny fly who has a human head and a human arm. And what's interesting is, is as much as uh, Pogue found the, the film fascinating, he didn't like the, the way that it transformed. It didn't make sense to him. So when he rewrote it, he came up with this whole concept of, you know what, what if instead of transforming that way, it, it's more of a genetic fusion and it, it, the, the fly genes slowly start kind of creeping into the human. And, and that's the way that he took it. Now, when Cronenberg ended up coming uh, along down the line, um, he, he really liked what Pogue did as far as the transformation. And if you've seen any of Cronenberg's films before this, it makes sense. It's exactly up his alley. But he didn't like that Pogue kind of stuck with the, the, the layout of the characters from the original film. And so he kind of created new characters and, and created his own path um, with, uh, with Brundle and with Ronnie. And made a film that I think, you know, the characters feel much more Cronenbergian, uh, uh, I guess you could say. Um, the great thing is, though, the WGA, it sounded like the WGA was going to give Cronenberg sole writing credit. And he said, no, 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 you got to co-credit uh, Pogue because um, without the foundation that he had created, there was no way I would have been able to write this script. And that's something you just don't hear. And we've talked about the WGA and the, the crediting uh, so often in this film. It was nice to hear that here's a guy who says, no, 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 you got to credit the other guy, too. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty special thing. What was the last time you read uh, *Metamorphosis*, Franz Kafka? Uh, never. Really? Yeah, never. Huh. It's a. It, it, you should. It's it's good. It's worth reading in in terms of you know talking about this. What's really interesting about it as a novella is that it deals with essentially everything after the transformation part, right? Because this is about a a man who uh, wakes up just one day he's like a salesman and he wakes up the next day to find he's he's turned into an insect right so we don't ever see that the why which i think this is artfully displayed here in on you know in the film but it does deal with 
some very similar concepts, right? Very similar concepts of how do you how do you adjust to this new life, this new world after a massive transformation like this takes place. And so I think it's it it I found myself when thinking about the script, I found myself finding it a little bit hard not to read into at least it, and and acknowledge the inspiration that comes from this novella published you know, a hundred years ago, uh, because it's a, it's a special piece of work. And I think it's, it's worth at least acknowledging there. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, honestly, how much Langlin, um, was influenced by that book when he wrote his short story. Um, and then it sounds like the original 1958 film was really a solid adaptation of that. Didn't take any of the, of metamorphosis into account. However, I definitely think Cronenberg had it in mind as he was doing uh, his own adaptation. It, it certainly feels like it takes it at least anthropologically and, um, and discusses many of the same conceits, which I think is, it's really good stuff. I mean, that's where, that is where for me, all, all the meat of this film comes in, right? It's the, it's the love story. It's the, uh, interpersonal relationship story. It's the story about work and drive. It's a story about succumbing to technology. Uh, and all of these things end up playing out right in front of us uh, in terms of Mr. Brundle. And speaking to your point that you made about uh, the script and how they they chose to um, write it in a way that was, I mean, you compared it to Jaws, which I think was interesting. Um, and th- we don't see a whole lot of the final real transformation of this creature uh, that uh, Seth becomes until really the end of the film. And what was uh, really fascinating is both Cronenberg and Pogue really wanted to avoid this guy who's stuck with a fly head for the script because he wouldn't be able to talk. And, and they're like, you got to have a guy who can talk. And they And so that was a very smart decision on their part to keep an actor who is transforming where you could have him talking through the whole film. And it's really not until right toward that climax um, when they're struggling together and Gina breaks his jaw off that he finally is unable to talk. And so, again, kind of going back to Jaws, you're not getting all the real the real creepy stuff until the those last bits. Now I'm and I will say something that I'm sure you're going to disagree with, but it is that last bit that makes this not a five-star film for me. Because I feel like they had shown such restraint for the entire film and they got me over the hump of the grossest stuff that once they made the transformation to a fly beast without the jaw and the big eyes and the grossness, they went ahead and decided we're going to come off the rails and become a traditional horror film for the last five minutes of the movie. And I felt like that was just a giveaway. I I felt like they'd done so much to create an incredibly tense and intense and thoughtful transformation that by the time we reached the end, it, it ended up um, it, it lost weight. Uh, And I, I found that really frustrating. I definitely disagree with you on that point because it, this is one of those films where you're still going to have to give the audience what they want. And and I think that's exactly what people wanted, despite what you say. No, no, Maybe no. But let me make a case. It. Let me make a case. Okay, okay. He, I know he had to die. I know he had to die. But don't you think it would have been a more impactful death had we seen him come off the rails and still have some remnant of Goldblum in there? I don't think so. I, I'm not saying well, he had you're to die. Wrong. I'm saying he had to go through a, a greater transformation. I, I'm saying that he had to get to a place where there was a lot more of the fly rather than more of the human in order for us to really kind of make that uh, switch. And so I, I'm completely uh, convinced that this is the way that it should end. All right. Well, I, I mean, you'll learn to live with 
your failings. <laughs> uh, I already uh, have. This is also directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, in terms of his work as director, now not writer, how did the film structure uh, work for you? Well, they call him the king of venereal horror. You know, certainly he's somebody who deals with biological horror quite a bit, or at least did up through a certain point in his career. He certainly has seemed to kind of take a shift in direction um, as far as the types of films that he does. But I think that uh, he does a great job with what he's given here. And and I think that knowing the stuff that he had done beforehand, he, he gosh, he seems like the perfect guy to have come on board for this. And it's funny, he was actually slated to do um, Total Recall, of all things, uh, when they tried to get him for this. And he was he ended up being so tied up with uh, De Laurentiis and the team over there that they ended up having to find a different director and all this stuff. And finally, it came back around to him after uh, he ended up uh, falling off the Total Recall um, wagon, but um, so they were able to get him. But I mean, it's like I can't imagine a different person coming in to direct this. This it seems such a David Cronenberg film that um, I mean, it's it's so right up his alley, and it's it's a weird little place because this is like. A, a really kind of a, a a studio big horror sort of film, but it also really feels like a Cronenberg film. It's like the perfect pairing for the two of them. And I think he brought all the right Cronenbergisms to it to really make it a film that uh, stands out as one of his, but also a great film outside of that. I do too. I, you know, it's, it strikes me that when you look at the the sort of place this film fits in his career, I mean, he, he was coming off the early 80s, Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone, uh, which obviously we've talked about on this show, uh, and then uh, The Fly, and then I think one of his very, very best films, uh, Dead Ringers, uh, which was, I saw that again recently, and I'm just, it was the first Cronenberg film I saw in a the theater, and it's just a, a terrific uh, haunt. And uh, so the 80s for him were very good and really defined, I think, what his uh, defined his tone to come for the next. I mean, you can see the way he works his the narrative in a dangerous method coming really genetically straight from the fly and from dead zone. Uh, and so I, I think it really uh, this sort of cemented who he is as a filmmaker uh, in a lot of respects. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I, you know, just looking at the stuff that he was offered, though, after doing uh, The Dead Zone and his huge success there, the fact that he was offered uh, Beverly Hills Cop and Return of the Jedi and Top Gun makes no sense to me. You know, in the in the whole sort of multi-universe theory of, of uh, like <laughs> physics, there is every choice creates a new universe. There is a place, there is a universe where Cronenberg directed all those and right. Ghostbusters, you know? <laughs> exactly. And Total Recall. <laughs> David, David Cronenberg's Animal House. That's there too. <laughs> <laughs> I would right. not want to watch the, the pimple scene <laughs> in that version of the film. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, the Cronenberg's pimple. Oh, dear. Uh, let's talk about first shot, last shot. Let's. Uh, first shot, we've got multicolor titling coming out of focus to reveal a wide fly's eye view uh, of the uh, press party where uh, Veronica meets Seth initially. Uh, and it's kind of this weird RGB kind of um, coming in and out of focus. Uh, of all the people. It looks like you're the fly sitting up in the corner. It's very cool. 
And then the last shot, of course, after Veronica has uh, taken the shotgun and shot Brundlefly in the head. Technically, by that point, I think they called him the space bug. Uh, <laughs> she's blown his head off. She's in tears. She breaks down in tears after having blown his head off in the lab. Uh, we have, of course, uh, Stathis kind of <laughs> reeling in the corner after having uh, several limbs dissolved off. And that's how we end. Incredibly uh, stark, dramatic, abrupt. Fast, yeah, fast. Uh, and, and she is just devastated, obviously devastated. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we see here is that it, it is the all of the stories that we talked about in our initial thoughts uh, about, that, that start with this film, the story of technology, the story of uh, man and work and work. This is a work life balance story uh, and, uh, and, and their love story. Uh, everything that begins in that first sequence at the party ends in the very last shot of the film. Yeah, it's it's quite a way to kind of show the entire course of this romance between these two people. Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I think it's a really interesting and uh, it's an effective way that Cronenberg chooses to focus this story. And I know they had tried some different endings, um, some epilogues where you have, you know, whether it's Ronnie waking up from a nightmare of having Seth's baby or Ronnie having a dream about a baby with butterfly wings uh, being born from a cocoon. Um, lots of different endings. Even the even the dream sequence that we had, where she has gives birth to the uh, the kind of the mutated fly the baby, <laughs> giant maggot. Right, the giant maggot. That at one point had been uh, considered for the ending. So I'm really glad that Cronenberg was smart and said, no, no, no. Let's just keep it really tight, really focused, and just make it about this relationship. So I, I really I think he did a great job with this first shot, last shot. Uh, let's dive into the cast, shall we? Yes, Deirdre Bowen did the casting, and uh, she's quite the regular with Cronenberg. She's been working with him uh, since The Dead Zone, and she put this uh, great cast together. Starting with uh, Jeff uh, Goldblum, who, uh, you know, you forget when you see, when you just spend time watching things like Jurassic Park, uh, just how incredibly wonderful of a physical actor he is. Uh, the way he uses his body and his eyes and his arms and uh, the way he manifests the twitches early on. Um, he starts in this film as the hunk, like the sort of oddball hunk that I'm always surprised Elliot Gould is mistaken for, right? Like, <laughs> he's, he's that guy, uh, and, and he can pull it off. I, I think he is just absolutely devastatingly good in this movie. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just am blown away by watching Jeff Goldblum, um, the way he plays that transformation. He does such an amazing job. They talked about how a lot of actors that they offered this to really rejected the idea of being covered in makeup because, you know, as an actor, their performance is what carries the carries things. And and I think a lot of actors get nervous about having that much makeup on and, and how it's going to hide them. Michael Keaton turned it down. Richard Dreyfuss turned it down. Uh, and I, I think that it's really interesting and says a lot that Jeff Goldblum um, not only was interested but excited about the opportunity to have all that makeup on and and really use it for his performance. He does an amazing job here. And, you know, it was it was so good. I know some people talked about – I think Gene Siskel actually said that he should uh, be nominated for an Oscar. Um, of course, it's not the type of film where people get nominated for Oscars. But if you look at the list, I think Jeff Goldblum – 
is on par or better than some of the people here. Paul Newman in The Color of Money, Dexter Gordon in Round Midnight, Bob Hoskins in Mona Lisa, William Hurt in Children of a Lesser God, James Woods in Salvador. I've seen, uh, you know, uh, three of the five films, and I would I would probably just prefer. Maybe it's just because this is the type of film I'd prefer, but I would pick uh, Jeff Goldblum over those yep. guys. Absolutely. I haven't seen a performance better driven by eyes uh, since, I mean, who was it? Um, Matthew Almerich uh, in Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Like Ooh, this, call. this was uh, an amazing use of just his straight up eye organs. Uh, I, I it, it, he is, it, it was fantastic. You could take all of the other kind of twitchy makeup stuff away, and you still know who this character is because Jeff Goldblum uh, just owned his eyes. What's crazy is that the studio head said, no, he's not a bankable star. And he was like trying to convince them that they were making a, a bad decision with casting him. But uh, he did say, and this is amazing that this happened at the time. And I just can't picture a studio head saying this. He said, he's not a bankable star, but you guys, it's your project. It's your mistake to make. And he let them Ooh. run with it. It wasn't a great compliment, but still, yeah. <laughs> he let them make the decision. He didn't dictate, and uh, you know yeah. that's not something you hear so much these days. Uh, while we're talking about uh, Jeff Goldblum's performance, I feel like we have to give a shout out to Brent Meyer, who was uh, Brundle's stunt double for the acrobatics. What a fantastic body double he was! Oh, it's great. I mean, and and I think again, Cronenberg found a great way to cut between them because. I, I'm always watching for where's the cut between yeah. <laughs> between his gymnastic double and him, and it's boy, it's it's, it's so good. I mean, you could almost uh, not realize it. So, so solid work to this whole team. Gina Davis uh, was dating Goldblum at the time. Yeah, they were a couple, and in fact, I think Goldblum had kind of mentioned to Cronenberg, "Hey, you should have uh, Gina audition," um, and they're like, "No, no, no, you're you know ju- you're just saying that because you're dating her," and and they went through a whole bunch of different actresses to try to find the right Veronica, and uh, they finally auditioned um, uh, Gina, and the producer was just like, "Yeah, but you know, you think that she's so good, but really, it's just because the script is so good." Um, but they, they, you know, Cronenberg kind of got it into his head by that point. And he was a little nervous about having a a couple that was actually dating on screen together, concerned that they weren't going to be able to play as if they weren't dating. And, uh, I think that was a real concern because obviously, you know, there is some, there is, especially at the beginning, they're not, they're not together. And then she goes off uh, kind of with status, uh, off and on. And, um, but I think that it ended up working well. And I think Cronenberg ended up finding enough comfort with it that uh, he found a way to make it work. And, you know, I wish that Gina and Jeff uh, were still doing stuff together because I find the chemistry they have on screen just so great and so interesting. I really enjoy watching these two as a pair. Absolutely. And and isn't it interesting, back to this whole, you know, I made the comment earlier that there's no overriding malevolence in this film. One of the things that I think is so interesting is that Gina is given this character who is the the orbit or, or, or is the, the sort of locus of gravity around which this cycle of jealousy spins. And we know that uh, Seth is jealous of his perceived relationship that she has with, uh, with John Getz's character. And 
yet there is there's never a sense that she is going to be have any sort of infidelity for her relationship with uh, with Seth. That would be kind of a cheap out. Um, and and the guy, you know, uh, John Getz is a jerk, and that's her whole relationship with him is about saying you're a jerk up until the very end when he rescues her. Which I find so interesting. That's not what you expect in kind of this this love triangle sort of yeah. story, where this guy who's such a jerk and is just just terrible and and petty and just not the guy that you ever would want to see her end up with becomes the guy who helps her escape this guy at the end. It's it's yeah. an interesting transformation over the course of the film, and I really uh, <laughs> I thought he was. Uh, uh, great as Stathisborns. Well, and and it would have been easy and cheap writing to go any other way, and and I think they this this shows <laughs> shows a lot of drafts, frankly. I mean, to get it to this level of of subtlety, and so John Getz as Stannis Baratheon. Um, <laughs> Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> <laughs> might as well be right. I, I <laughs> really. <laughs> I know as Stathisborns, it's like yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, anyway, he was great. He's the he's the third wheel. Uh, he's a publisher of this science magazine, and he's a jerk. And he also happens to be uh, an ex of uh, Gina and or Veronica in the film. And uh, they put him in a place that's just like quintessentially sort of small magazine publishing house, cheap furniture. It it really mimics who he is as a character. I think so well. I I know exactly who he is the first time we set foot in his office. I find it really interesting being a character like this who ends up getting to uh go through so much makeup also, who has who knows that he's walking into this project where he's going to have to be sitting with his foot uh, through a hole in the floor for weeks on end while he's got this fake leg that's getting dissolved over and over and over again trying to make it work and uh, you know same thing with his arm and everything it's just it's just uh it's fun and i think as an actor i mean, I mean i'm sure there's there's a level of exhaustion in that where you're stuck sitting in a certain place forever but you know i i don't know i i find it interesting that that actors go into things like uh, like this where they get to do opportunities um uh, play around with effects like that well and he he goes into shock with the very best of them Yes, he does. You I know? just, I just, I wish he had more like sweat on his brow when he did. I feel like, man, I feel like he'd be really sweating. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. well, it was a dry sweat. <laughs> it was a dry sweat. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, anybody else you really want to talk about in the cast? Those were the big three for me, and it was a small cast anyway. Yeah, not too big. You really do focus on these three people. I know that was a conscious decision that uh, Cronenberg had when they were uh, putting the script together that he said, you know, obviously, Veronica is going to have more friends in her life. You know, Stathis isn't the only person that she's going to be able to turn to when she needs to talk to somebody about something. You know, why always go to the ex? Why not go to a friend or something like that? But it's actually really, I think, smart writing to kind of limit it to such a a small group that I I think ended up really helping this this love triangle out as it develops over the course of the film. So I I, I think it is a really interesting cast, um, particularly these three, and not a whole lot of other people that are probably um, a lot to talk about other than maybe George Chavallo as the guy who um, gets his uh, arm broken during the arm wrestling match. In the bar, and that's just because I think it's just funny that he is this huge uh, heavyweight boxer. He's can, uh, Canada's greatest boxer, 
and uh, just a, a really impressive career. I don't think he was ever knocked off his feet in a professional fight. He fought Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, uh, just a, a big figure in the boxing world, and he's the one who gets his arm broken uh, by Jeff Goldblum. That's <laughs> pre- pretty gruesome. <laughs> it's pretty gruesome. Oh, it's fun. It's really fun. All right, so we've talked just a little bit about getting it made. Uh, Let's dive into a a little bit more production. There is a a relationship between uh, this film and uh, one of our greatest comedians that I think has surprised both of us. I don't think I realized as a kid um, what Brooks Films was, and I'm not sure when that finally hit me. It must have been just somebody telling me, oh, Mel Brooks, that's his company. And then you see it in front of movies like, I mean, The Elephant Man, The Fly, uh, you know, movies that are like, and even something like 84 Charing Cross Road, which is just a, you know, big drama, but these aren't funny films. And this is Mel Brooks doing them. And he came up with the name specifically, my understanding is because, you know, for his kind of non-comedy Mel Brooks movies, he wanted to do something a little different. And yeah, he's the guy who's producing The Fly. Where does that come from? How does that fit into his world? You know, I think it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, comedians are always the smartest guys in the room anyway. That's That certainly is true. And I'm, I'm sure that didn't hurt. <laughs> no. Having him around on set. Well, and according to Cronenberg, you know, he's the one who, while they were uh, acting a scene out, he's, you know... Uh, Jeff Goldblum or Gina Davis, somebody says, oh, no, Jeff Goldblum says, don't be afraid. And uh, um, he's just like, man, I'd be afraid. I'd be very afraid, which kind of spurred on the whole idea of the line, the famous line from this film, be afraid, be very afraid, which is like iconic. (laughs) And it's just used all over the place now. And that's kind of spurred from Mel Brooks, which I think is so funny. How many people do you hear using that who don't think that it's from this movie, who would never be able to tell you? My wife didn't know it was from this movie. Until until she heard that scene, she's like, "Is that yeah. that's from this movie?" I I run into a lot of people who think it's from Alien or Aliens or one of the one of the Alien series. They're wrong, of course. Those people. What? Yeah, yeah, they're wrong. I feel like there's a similar line in Aliens, but it's more just about the dark, I guess. Right? Yeah, they come out yeah. dark mostly, or something like that. But something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's a, a fascinating connection to production. Cinematography by Mark Irwin. Uh, what do you think of Mark's work here? You know, I like his work. I think he does a great job um, just keeping the film in the horror vein without really feeling like he has to create it shadowy all the time. He makes it look like a real environment. And I think that's a, a, a strong uh, challenge for anyone going into a, a quote-unquote horror film is keeping it from being shadowy and mysterious all the time. But just making it look real. It looks real, but it definitely kind of the tone changes and gets darker as we progress. So he does a great job here. He is one of the people, we'll we'll go through a bunch of people here that are all Cronenberg regulars. He was a Cronenberg regular um, up through this film. And Cronenberg is definitely somebody who has his uh, his cronies, the people he always will call up and use them over and over for his films. Mark Irwin was one of those people until after this film, because Mark Irwin committed to making the uh, or to shooting the remake of The Blob. And then, of course, Cronenberg calls and say, hey, I'm about to make this movie, The uh, Dead Ringers. Do you want to come over? And Mark Irwin's like, oh, I can't. I already committed to this other project. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't you know, drop another film uh, or drop your film if somebody else called. So I can't drop their film just because you're calling. And that was the last time Cronenberg hired him <laughs> because he hired Peter, uh, Peter Sushitsky to do Dead Ringers. And he has worked with Peter ever since. Well, and, uh, you know, Mark Irwin's gone on to do some films that, uh, you know, 
He's been involved in some films that are pretty close to my heart. Let's just say that. You know, Big Mama's House 2. <laughs> I knew that was the one that you were thinking of. <laughs> but seriously, Dumb and Dumber, and there's something about Mary and Scream, and uh, um, he's just he's he's got 128 credits uh, to him and is actively working and has done a lot of funny work. Old school. Uh, he DP'd old school. Um it's funny. I mean, he, somehow he got into this comedy gig yeah, and right. just, man, wrote it all the way to the bank. That's what's so funny is he really seemed to take that shift after he stopped working with Cronenberg and just went in a totally different direction. And uh, yeah, now is kind of a, a comedy guy, which is, you know, uh, good for him. I mean, he's still working, still super busy. We're talking about Mark Irwin and the challenges that he had to deal with on this film. Carol Spire's production designer, you know, the whole beautiful loft, the aspirational loft, the loft that I would love to live in now minus the telepods, it was all on a on a gimbal somehow? Are they flipping it around? They they had a chunk of the of the loft on a on a round set that they could rotate in kind of a drum. And uh, yeah, Goldblum got to kind of uh, play all day. I mean he talked about, you know, this is this is the, the best part of being an actor when you get to go play around like this and you just get to run around in this giant hamster wheel all day long. And uh yeah, so it but it was a very particular uh, part of the set that they built, not the entire set, just a very, very small part that he could kind of uh, run around in. But I mean, a lot of work goes into something like that, because when it rotates, things vibrate. And so they have to lock everything down, they have to uh, anything like a piece of cellophane that happens to be lying on the counter, because at this point, he's transforming, and he's eating junk food, yeah. like a maniac. So all the little wrappers and everything, they had to like, uh, spray them in, uh, I can't remember what some sort of glue to keep them in exactly the same position so that when the whole set rotated, it wouldn't shift. So just an amazing amount of work that uh, that she had to do to kind of put this sort of stuff together. Uh, not to mention the the really creative designs for the telepods that came from uh, Cronenberg's Ducati uh, motorcycle cylinder, and and really just I mean all in all just a lot of really solid work. Carol, of course, is another Cronenberg regular, and she did and make sure to include computers where like all the Ridley Scott computers, Blade Runner, Alien. They all make sound of a printer as they're making letters on the screen, which I think is is always delightful. Isn't that what your computer does? That's mine <laughs> well, does not that. right now. <laughs> I mean, we're podcasting. I put the I put the printer sound on mute. Oh yes, right. Of course, of course. <laughs> um, a, a costume design, Denise Cronenberg. Uh, yes, of course. Another another of his regulars. Uh, of course, that is his wife. And I mean, just looking at you know, Ronald Sanders was his editor that he uses. Uh, Howard Shore, of course, does the music. A lot of the same people that you'll see uh, jumping across. Although Creature Effects, uh, Chris Wayless and uh, his whole team at CWI, including uh, Stéphane Dupois, um, all were uh, really instrumental. I don't think they had worked with Cronenberg uh, on any of his other previous effects films, um, but certainly they bring a lot to the table in this particular film. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and I'm super torn on that because I do actually like the creature if you take it out of this film. Like, it's a cool creature. And I think they they did a lot of work, particularly at the time, to make it good and sympathetic and horrific at the same time. That's obviously challenging to do. Um, I just, you know, wish it you're, wasn't in the movie. You're just poo pooing it. I know. Yeah, that's me. I, uh, animals, they, they did have a couple of baboons and some flies. They did. They did have some, uh, they did have a baboon and some flies. The baboon named Typhoon, 
um, who, uh, you know, uh, baboons aren't trainable. Very complicated creature to work with. And it was only because the baboon wrangler, who happened to kind of be the uh, the uh, alpha male, along with Jeff Goldblum, because of his height, kind of became another alpha male, they were able to kind of keep the baboon in line. It sounded like the baboon, though, did fall in love with the script supervisor. And uh, because of that, uh, you know, baboons don't know how to show their affection. He was walking around with an erection most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> they had to find ways to shoot around or digitally remove it later. <laughs> Did they... They, they weren't digitally removing erections. Well, I, I don't were know. They? I, I don't know. It sounded like they the effects team might have had to go in. They were doing that in 1986. And actually, well, you know, they, it, not digitally, I guess, but they'd have to go in and actually, you know, paint it out in some shots. Mask it out, yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine going home at the end of the day? <laughs> I, what'd you do today? Oh, I spent all day painting erections frame <laughs> by frame. Oh, God, I have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so funny. But yeah, again, so, the baboon can't act. And so in order to get it, when, when we first meet the fly, it's bothering the baboon. And so they actually had a fly. And, you know, God love fly wranglers and how they figure out how to do things like this. But they, they somehow tied a fishing line to a fly. And they had it <laughs> buzzing around the baboon so that they could get the reactions of the baboon as it was trying to, uh, you know, avoid the fly that was buzzing around it. Does the SPCA get involved as a producer? <laughs> do they get involved at levels of the fly, like of flies? Uh, that's really, I mean, flies uh, only live like forty-eight hours, right? I mean, no, they they're about twenty-eight days. They live a little longer than that, but <laughs> but still, yeah, exactly. Like, is that when does it get to animal cruelty? Is it just putting yeah. it, putting it on a leash? I mean, <laughs> how do you check how tight it is around the little fly neck? I don't know. You can't put your finger under there to see if it's too tight. Oh dear. Oh yes. That's a treat. That's a treat. I like going to bed with that in my head. <laughs> uh post production, editing, uh Ronald Sanders, another Cronenberg uh, regular. Uh you know, it's a tight film. And it's short. It tells a lot of story in a lot of in, in a very short period. And they had a really tight deadline of putting this thing together. They had so little time. They had such a huge team, people working around the clock, really, to try to get the film cut and put together. And not to mention dealing with all the effects work that that we already mentioned. Um, uh, you know, and going back to the effects real quick and just how the effects team, uh, the visual effects uh, paired with the creature effects and the cinematography and everything motion control cameras and everything, tying all of that together. I mean, you know, Hoyt Yeatman, uh, who's done some of the effects, he uh, um, helped out coming up with some of the the different sort of um, the visual effects for this film. But, you you know, you have things like these... um, uh, the the uh, telepods and things are disappearing from them. Well, to make it complicated, Cronenberg uh, wanted to have the dolly pushing in on that, and to do that, you have to have motion control cameras because you push on it with a baboon in it, then you push in on it with an empty one, and it has to match the movement of the camera has to be exactly the same in order to make that work, and. Uh, 
it's a real challenge to do that. You got these motion control cameras that really had never been used for that type of thing in the past. It had really only been used for model work. And uh, so these guys ended up finding a way to make it work and did it really well. And then the visual effects team has to jump in and do the, uh, they they created these little um, micro switches on the dolly tracks so that when the motion control camera would hit a very particular spot, it would cue the, the, the white flashes inside the telepod to, to blink so that they had that as the cut point. Again, going back to Ronald Sanders and his editing, finding, taking all those elements that he was getting from these this team putting all this stuff together and finding the right way to cut it together and everything. Uh, just really stellar work all around. I think these guys did uh, great stuff here. I, I can't imagine taking on a project like that now without some sort of a digital asset manager. I can't imagine like dealing with the number of different assets and angles and and uh, you know and cutting it on film that breaks my brain. Well, and and you know I, I'd mentioned the creature effects again. I and think about how many takes you have. I mean, this was this this uh, the space bug puppet at the end. They had twenty operators working on that thing. A lot of them under the floor trying to get it to step and move properly and everything. Yeah. And and then you have little uh, little Ronald Sanders in his editing suite with all of his assistants going through all this footage. And, you know, it's it's, you know, the directors and, and the whole effects team saying left foot, right foot, left foot, you know, and it's like there's nothing that ties it emotionally or in any way to the actual film itself. So you have to look at these shots and go, OK, I can tie that in and we can dub in the audio to make it work. And. I can only imagine how complicated that is on films like so this. So complicated, yeah. truly. Yeah. Music, Howard Shore. Wow, man. From the opening title, the opening bar, you are in it with the music. It is bananas how good this score is. Such a great score. They really went big operatic sort of score for this. And I just think it's such an interesting choice to take. But it feels so right for a Cronenberg film, especially because he and Howard Shore are regular collaborators again. But also, it just, it you know, in a story like this, I, I found it so uh, powerful and it hits so strongly. Um, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Cronenberg um, remembered that uh, Mel Brooks, when they were listening to the score, um, he said um, there was a scene... When, uh, when Seth Brundle's walking down the street and you have this huge music crescendo and Mel Brooks says, uh, the guy's just walking down the street. Why is it so big? <laughs> and Cronenberg <laughs> looks at him and he's like, no, Mel, the guy is about to meet his destiny. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and Brooks goes, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> like, yep. Yep. That's what our chore is bringing to the table here. So I, you know, it stuff. works surprisingly well uh i i'm they it shocks you right into the tone i think it's fantastic it's so good it's so good um just a last quick mention about music um brian ferry was actually hired to to write a song for the film the song help me um i love that they managed to keep the 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 phrase help me from the original film which has kind of become an iconic moment in that original uh, help me which yeah. is so great. Um, they found a way to integrate that into the script. And then, of course, the title for this Brian Ferry song. Um, they wrote this, you know, because at the time, everybody was writing these uh, cheesy pop songs to play at the end credits of your movie. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't fit at all. And Cronenberg liked the song, but he says, he played it for uh, for Mel Brooks. He's like, listen to it. It doesn't work when this film ends. You don't want to hear that 
pop song come up. <laughs> it ruins it. And everybody agreed. So the only place you actually hear any little bits of that song is actually in the bar scene when he's doing the arm wrestling. And uh, yeah, so uh, it is out there. You can track that song down, but uh, that's uh, why it's not in the film. How to do it award season. Uh, you know, this was not, again, the sort of film that really gets Oscars. Uh, although, oddly enough, it is the year that Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Best Actress for Aliens. But typically, it's not the type of film that gets Oscar nominations, except for something like Best Makeup Effects, which it was nominated for and which it won. Uh, both Chris and Stefan did walk away with an Oscar that night, beating out The Clan of the Cave Bear and Legend, which I got to say, Tim Curry, Legend, yeah. pretty amazing yeah. makeup effects. But still, you got the space bug. You got yeah. Jeff Tim Goldblum. Curry had no space bug. Pretty solid stuff here. Totally agree. How about sequels? How how much do you love uh, Fly 2? Fly 2 definitely has its camp of followers who really enjoy it and think that it's a, a, a fun part of the series. I don't think I'm quite in that camp, but I'm not with the rest of the world that just completely hates this film. It is a, maybe a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me. I mean, I acknowledge it's pretty terrible, but I do uh, find some enjoyment in it. Chris Wayless, of course, did return to direct it. I think it's interesting that actually they talked to Cronenberg and Goldblum and, and Davis, all these people to kind of come back for it. But, uh, you know, Cronenberg had never done sequels before and wasn't quite interested. He didn't know, you know, how he would really do it. Um, it just didn't sound like something that people um, really wanted to be a part of. So, it, you know, it was its own little thing. And, uh, you know, Eric Stoltz is in it. And, you know, it's enjoyable in its own way, I guess. We'll leave it at that. Eric, Eric Stoltz was in it, but also Daphne Zuniga. Daphne Zuniga, absolutely. Because I fell in love with her in Spaceballs. Of course <laughs> she was in Fly 2. I was all over that. And that's the reason I liked Fly 2. I don't even remember what happened in the story other than she was in it. And then she was in Gross Anatomy. And I loved that movie. Such a, an amazing guilty pleasure for me. Matthew Modine, Daphne Zuniga, Christine Lottie. I love that movie. Shut up, everybody. <laughs> everybody, shut up. John Getz did return for Fly 2, though. He is in it. And I think it sounded like he might regret it, regret it a little bit. Um, I do think it's funny, though, that, you know, Gina, after uh, being with uh, Jeff Goldblum for a while, ended up with Rennie Harlan. We talked about that in um, uh, last The Long Kiss Goodnight, she and Rennie Harlan actually talked about a sequel called Flies, which was about her after this film was over, kind of ignoring the Flies, uh, the Fly 2 sequel. And she had twins. And so her twin babies were kind of <laughs> mutated fly baby people. <laughs> it's which I think awful. is so funny. I know. But uh, there was a, a graphic novel uh, series, a uh, sequel to The Fly 2 called The Fly Outbreak. Um, Todd Lincoln was trying to do a um, a remake of The Fly in the uh, early 2000s. And then Cronenberg had been talking probably three or four years ago about what he called an oblique sequel to The Fly, where it's not really a direct sequel, but it's just kind of a, you know, it has some of the same themes and it, it kind of might go along the same lines, but he didn't really uh, consider it a complete sequel. So, you know, it sounds very Cronenbergian to say stuff like that. Uh, it would have been interesting to see what happened. I don't know if he's still working on that. Um, although I think that he and Howard Shore did do an opera version of this. An opera? I don't know how gory the opera got, but, um, you know, it's such a big story. I can see that kind of working in a weird way. Well, when it comes through, how about that? We'll go see it. Let's do it. 
All right. (laughs) (laughs) I I found it really interesting that Gene Siskel, a film critic uh, who wasn't really into horror films, did name this the 10th best film of 1986, which I thought was a bit of a surprise. And interestingly enough, this ended up being the first theatrical film to have its broadcast premiere on Fox television. This was kind of, you know, Fox TV was kind of getting, you know, going through its uh, infancy stages right around this time. This was the the first film to play on it as a as a film. Well, that somehow doesn't surprise me. I wonder how much of it they actually had to cut for TV, though. I'll bet the melting hand. <laughs> I melting bet a, hand, a lot of foot. goo coming yeah. out of uh, the goo. Gold, yeah. So you said earlier the average house uh, lifespan of a housefly is twenty eight days. Have you mapped that to uh, his transformation? You know, how many weeks go by over the course of his transformation? I wonder how well that lines up. That's a good question. Well, I know yeah. that there's at least a big four-week gap in there when he calls and hasn't seen Ronnie for That's four right. weeks. That's right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. More than 28 days. Anyway, how to do at the box office, Andrew? You know, the movie cost $9 million to make with it. Sounds like about an additional $6 million for prints and advertising, making it a total budget of $15 million in 1986 dollars or $33 million in, in today's dollars. Um, it opened August 15th, 1986, opposite Armed and Dangerous, Manhunter, and The Boy Who Could Fly. An interesting set of films to, to call Summer Fair. <laughs> Back in the mid-80s. And interestingly, this is the film that bumped Aliens out of its number one spot at the box office. Wow. So I thought that was uh, quite interesting. I think Aliens had been a number one film for uh, three weeks before this came in and knocked it down a few notches. But oh, how things change since The Thing was released just five years earlier. This go-around, boy, the effects actually were a huge draw for the audiences. As we talked about in The Thing, that was the thing that kind of kept people away from that one. But this one, it really helped. This film ended up grossing about $40.5 million domestically and about $20 million internationally, making for an adjusted total gross of just over $133 million. To date, this is one of the highest-grossing Canadian films made, and it's still David Cronenberg's most financially successful film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $1,056,675. That's a haul. That nice short good. film, though. There's a the benefit of a short film. Yeah, you know, we say that quite a bit. Yeah, it's only it's yeah. really tight, 95 minutes or so. I think it's great, Andy, and I am excited to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. I want you to log in with your credentials over there and then you search for The Fly 1986, not the original one, not The Fly 2. This is the one you want to do. The Fly, parentheses, 1986. David Cronenberg, here we go, Andy. What's it up against? All right, first off, we're doing The Fly and The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2. That's a tough one to start on. That is a tough one to start on. Um, You know... Uh, the fly is awfully high on my list, though. I think I'm going to go with the fly. Yeah, I think I am too. Is that weird? No, it's a great film. Yeah, I just yeah, okay. Just mean for me. Okay, <laughs> oh, it is fly. weird for you. The fly or the Hurt Locker? Definitely the fly for me. Definitely the Hurt Locker. Ah, oh, what is it with you and the Hurt Locker? What is it with you, not the Hurt Locker? <laughs> it's a great film, but it's not a film that I'm going to return to much in my life. I really like that movie. It's fine, but, you know. It's more than fine. You know what I find interesting about The Hurt Locker? I have heard more about that film and how military people are so offended by that film. 
Really? Yeah. I, I don't know what it is about that film, but you know, it, when our, in our conversation about Black Hawk Down, I was doing some reading about military people and, and film and how Black Hawk Down, they look at with such respect, but the Hurt Locker, they think is such a joke. Really? Yeah. Wow. I wish I didn't have such a good time watching it then. No, it's, a, it's Jeremy a good Renner, film, but... Anthony Mackie, Ray Fiennes. Come on. It's great. David Morse. We love David Morse. <laughs> We love all those people, but uh, it's, Evangeline it, Lilly. It's we really a, love her. Yes, I, 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 I'm, I'm rarely picking that one as something to watch. It's a, it is a strong film, but I'm definitely going to pick The Fly mm. first. I'm going to give you The Fly. Oh, okay, I'll take I know. it. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting yeah. that. I thought I was going to lose to Rock Paper Scissors again. No, you shamed me down. <laughs> all right, The Fly or Aliens? A little 1986 battle. It's aliens. It's aliens. It's absolutely it's so aliens. aliens. It's absolutely okay. aliens. Okay, Andy, it's aliens. <laughs> Which one do you want, Pete? Which Stop one? Which one? jerking around. <laughs> you click aliens and back away from the computer. Oh, my goodness. The fly or the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what you say. Good, bad, and the ugly. Oh, all right. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the fly. I am pleasantly surprised. Even though, interestingly, the fly has the good... Gina Davis, the bad John Getz, and the ugly Jeff Goldblum. Excuse me, I have to vomit on my own wrist. <laughs> That's how good that joke was. I thought it was great. <laughs> oh, I live for these moments, Pete. <laughs> Let me have it. <laughs> the Fly or Zero Dark Thirty? More Catherine Bigelow. You're gonna you're gonna say Zero Dark Thirty. I'm totally saying the Fly. Yeah. <laughs> I love Zero Dark What's Thirty, it? but again, I'm not going to return to that very much. It's a How do military film. people feel about Zero Dark Thirty? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't find out about that one. Just the Hurt Locker. That's the one they seem to have real problems with. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll go with The Fly. All right. The Fly or The Descent. Totally The Fly for me. Yeah, it's The Fly. All right. The Fly or No Country for Old Men. Ooh. These are like two spots away from each other on my flick chart. That is really funny. I I will go with, um, see, I would naturally, if you weren't here, if I were alone, I would definitely say No Country for Old Men. That's mine. It is? Yep. Oh, huzzah. Huzzah. See, we didn't have to fight, Pete. No. No fighting here. This one we'll have to fight about. <laughs> the Fly or Moneyball. Moneyball, please. I'll it take Moneyball. The fly for me. All right. As much go. as I love Moneyball, yep. it is the fly for me. And here Are we go. One, One, two, two three, three, paper. paper. One, two, three, scissors. One, two, three, scissors. Paper. That's okay. I'm okay with that loss. Those are both really good films. <laughs> that is true. You take it like a gentleman. Yes. I don't have to throw up on your face and dissolve your jaw. <laughs> <off. laughs> All right. Well, that leaves it at number 54 on our flick chart. That's a nice place. That's that, a nice place for it. It's a pretty solid spot. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it there. And... Uh, I mean, it's, man, is this a fun film to watch. And I love the ending. I know you have issues with it, but, uh, you know, for me, this is a five-star film. Four and a half stars for me, please, sir. 
Four and a half it is, Pete. I will let yeah. you have it. You're going to... Are you going to round it up? Is that what you're doing? Well, it would be 4.75, which will round it to five. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I figured you would do anyway. So it's a principled average. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, this, was a, this was a really fun movie to talk about. So uh, again, thanks, Matt Medrano, for picking it. I know it's been on his list of things for us to talk about for like five years. And so I'm really glad we finally got to it. And uh, uh, absolutely worth it. And uh, it was a treat to watch it again. Yep, so much fun, and I'm glad to have had an excuse to put it in. And actually, I started the fly two again just because I'm like, oh no, I gotta finish it. Uh, uh, what do we have coming up, Andy? We got a couple of good things, and and then we're starting into a new series. We are kicking off our Betty Davis series, which is going to span two decades of her career, starting with William Wyler's 1941 film The Little Foxes, then covering Now Voyager. 1950s Best Picture winner All About Eve, and ending with some craziness when we find out whatever happened to Baby Jane. Uh, Until then, uh, just immediately coming up next week, uh, we've got uh, uh, The Philadelphia Story, another TNR speakeasy, this time with uh, director Steve Miner, who is, let me just say, awesome. Such a great guest. Steve Miner, director of such things as uh, Friday the 13th, 2 and 3. That's right. You heard it and House, and Halloween H2O, uh, along with uh, enough TV that you have seen, I guarantee you have seen, that you will be stunned uh, that you didn't know Steve Miner was behind it. How about that? That sounds great. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to him. And uh, so I, I think that covers everything we need to talk about, Andy. I and think it does. I, I gotta go to bed. No, don't go to bed. I've come here to say one magic word to you. Deal? Cheeseburger. Amazon giveth, Andy. Oh, as Amazon always doeth. Uh, I've I've got I've got one from Unknown. Back in 2001, format VHS tape. Do you remember those? Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Unknown says, this is the worst movie I have ever seen in my whole life. I am serious when I say this is the worst movie I have ever seen in my whole life. This is the most disgusting movie ever made. How can people give it five stars? This movie is bloody and gory. It's disgusting. I didn't even watch the whole movie all the way through. I had to fast forward a ton of times when it got too gross. I will never watch this movie again in my life. Yuck. I hate this stupid movie. In the movie, he does disgusting things like pulling off his fingernails. Yes, he pulls off his fingernails in the movie. Then he purposely cuts his finger and yellow blood comes out. Then he arm wrestles another guy and he pulls his hand off. And it is very bloody and gory. It's so disgusting. Yuck. And he looks so disgusting when he's turning into a fly. This is nothing like the original story. In this movie, he slowly turns into a man-sized fly. He looks so disgusting. At the end of the movie, his girlfriend shoots him. And again, it's very bloody and gory. He also throws up in the movie. And it's very disgusting. 
do not see this movie. This movie is rated R for sex, nudity, language, violence, and it's very scary and gory. So do not see this movie. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like about halfway in there, I started burying myself in the part a little bit. That I want the poster on my wall with that quote on it. That's the best ever. This movie is rated R for sex, nudity, language, violence, and it's very scary and gory. So do not see this. I love that so Oh, well, I have a one star, nowhere near as spectacular as yours, uh, by Opa520, who says, Remake sucks! The original 1958 version is much better. This version sucks big time. And I can't believe Gina Davis actually agreed to act in it. Totally dumb, disgusting, and don't waste your time. Okay. We have, uh, I think they may have, have colluded on their reviews. Yes, they might have been working together. Oh, dear. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>